What preparations did you make for this storm? Perhaps you purchased food, perhaps you bought some gasoline, you cleaned out your gutters, or maybe you just sat back and did nothing. Regardless, we tend to prepare when we are about to do something or receive something. And our preparations are often in correlation to what we are going to receive or what we are about to do. So if we're going to be going on a long trip, we'll often prepare by packing enough clothes to last us through our trip. Our preparations are correlate to what we will do and receive. If we're just going on an overnight stay, we'll only take a handful of things. But what about when the eternal Son of God was going to come? What about when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was going to arrive? What kind of preparations needed to be done in order to get the people ready to receive Him? We learned this morning through Luke chapter 3 that when the king arrived, the people's hearts needed to be prepared. They needed to be softened. They needed to be turned to the Lord in order to receive him. And one of the things we find in this particular story this morning is that some will receive him as king and some will not. Now, we've been studying through this letter uh, or the Gospel of Luke. We've learned of the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. We're going to learn more about him this morning. We've seen the incarnation of the eternal Son of God come, clothing himself in human flesh. We've heard many eyewitness accounts from Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, and from Mary's own reflections as she treasured up all these things in her heart. Even hearing from the testimony from a few godly couple, or godly saints rather, there serving in Jerusalem. The evidence we find as we study through this is mounting, and our faith, Lord willing, growing. As Luke is writing to Theophilus to encourage him in the faith, to to make sure that, that, that his friend knew that everything that he had come to know and believe was true. And trustworthy. That there were eyewitnesses to all of these events. That this is not mere fairy tale. This is not a myth. This is not a legend. This happened. It is historic fact. But, even though it is historical fact, it still requires faith to believe that Jesus Christ did come into the world to save sinners. And that there was a man named John who lived in the wilderness and prepared people's hearts to receive Jesus as king. Well, friend, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 3. We're going to consider this morning verses 1 through 20. So if you're used to following along, I would just encourage you to do that. I don't have much to say, but I hopefully this passage here has a few things to teach us this morning. It's on page 858. Luke chapter, or Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, In the fifth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonuntis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas, Annas rather, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to the son to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, 
proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brought of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of God to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. Ah, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he said to them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, who is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Friends, as we consider these verses this morning, the main idea is, I hope, clear. That following Jesus as Lord begins with repentance. That if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to go His way, it begins with repentance. And as we'll see this morning, repentance is a turning away from your way and a submission to God's new way through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, my hope is that we would get a better grasp of what is repentance. What does it mean to repent of our sins. And no doubt there's many different definitions of that, many different understanding of that. And one of the biggest questions I get often from Christians is in the matter of repentance. What does it mean to repent? Well, I hope this morning our passage teaches us, or to demonstrate to you, seven aspects of repentance. Now, you might get a little nervous about seven points to a sermon, but it won't be that long. We'll go through this quite quickly. Um, so I want to show you here in this particular, in this story, Luke teaching Theophilus, teaching us about repentance. What does it look like? So if you take notes, there's seven points to the sermon. What is repentance? Number one, we see in verses one and two that repentance is from God. Repentance is from God. Now, you'll notice here that Luke sets the scene, as he's done all throughout, by giving us historic information about real people who really did live, breathe, and rule. 
He's listed off a number of, uh, of uh, secular leaders, some leaders in Jerusalem. But, but what we're to take away from this is, number one, that this is historic fact. But more than that, I want to show you here in verse 2, as, as, as the scene is set, that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. I want you to see that God is the one who's behind all of this. Just as I demonstrated to you a few, few weeks ago as we thought about the very fact that Jesus was born in a particular place at a particular point in time. That God was orchestrating all of this, sovereignly bringing about the rising of kings and the falling of nations in order for you and I to understand that salvation is from Him. That John isn't just sort of doing this ministry on his own, but that he's been called by God to a particular ministry. And so we want to understand here that repentance is from God. That God is the one who has initiated the plan of redemption of His people. That we do not save ourselves, but that God saves us. It is His initiative. Now, we're told here in this particular passage, as it unfolds, that John has a particular ministry, doesn't he? He has a responsibility. He's not just to go share a general message, but he is to declare, he is to prepare the way. And we're told here in this quote from Isaiah that John had a, had a particular job, and that job was to prepare for the arrival of the king. Now, if you've ever studied this passage or that of Isaiah 40, you might find it strange. Well, what does it mean? Look, look with me here at verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The word Lord there is that of king. The king is coming. Prepare his way. The, the sovereign one is coming. Well, what is John to do? Well, he is to make paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level. In other words, the terrain was to become flat, the road straight, in order to ease transportation. Of course, many of you were alive during the modern interstate system when it was being built here uh, throughout the United States. Well, what did they do? They blew up mountains, didn't they? They filled in valleys. They, they stopped rivers in order to make sure that the interstates were as straight as possible, that they didn't wind as the, as the old highways did in order to make transportation faster and quicker. And so what John is doing here is preparing people's hearts spiritually in order to be more receptive to the gospel. The point I want us to see, though, is that God is the one who's called him. Therefore, we, we need to understand that first and foremost, that repentance is from God. God is the one who is preparing. And God has sovereignly worked in your life. And one day we'll go to glory and, we'll un, and the Lord will unpack just sort of events that took place in our life where he was preparing us to be at that particular place, to hear that particular sermon, or to turn that particular passage, or to have that friend sit down with us after the football game and, and share the gospel with us. God was the one who orchestrated your salvation. It is from him. You didn't stumble into church. 
You didn't turn up with that Bible. That, 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 that neighbor who shared the gospel with you, you didn't, none of that. God was behind it. So first and foremost, we ought to see that repentance is from God. Secondly, we see that repentance is for forgiveness. Look here again at verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is for forgiveness of sins. To repent is to turn away. It's literally what the word means, is to, to go the opposite direction. Now to be clear, the forgiveness of sin, now what is sin? Sin is living life your way rather than God's way. That's simply what it is. We don't need, you know, some big theological definition for sin. It's you making a conscious decision to say, no, I know this is wrong. I know you said I can't do that, but I'm going to do it anyways. We're all toddlers at heart. We're told not to do something and we do it anyways. We, we know the consequences to our sin and our action, yet we choose willfully to rebel against our good God. And therefore, we need to understand that repentance is for forgiveness. The aim of our repentance is that God would forgive us. Now, I want you to notice here that we're told that it was a baptism of repentance. Like he was baptizing folks by immersion, not that they would be forgiven, but as a, as a rite, as a sign, visually displaying what they sought in their repentance, you see? The, the going underwater and coming out of the water symbolized the washing away of sin, that their sin had been forgiven. This is what Peter preached at Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. When Jesus shows up in Galilee, the very first command that the Son of God declares is repent. Our greatest need is to stop living life our way and to go God's new way. Our greatest need is that God would forgive us of our sins, that we would receive the forgiveness that is available to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But repentance is also honesty. I want you to notice here what, what John says there in verse 7. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you broad of vipers who warned you to flee from the, the wrath of God to come. Repentance is about being honest. John was honest with the people. He didn't say, you know, things are going to be all right. I, I know you've messed up some in life, and I know you've kind of gone down that path, but it'd be all right. God is love. And perhaps that's what you think the gospel is, that God is love. That, that's the definition of the gospel to you, that God is just a really kind, benevolent grandfather, and uh, he's going to give you everything you want, and he's so loving that he's just going to just, you know, he's just going to look past your sins and your mistakes. That's not the message that John preached. 
John shows up in a town and he, and he says, listen, you brought of vipers, you, you snakes, you. He's using some symbolism here, isn't he? Snakes, serpent, desert. Well, who else is he referring to but Satan? He, he's, he's calling them out just like Jesus will call them out later. And he says, you act like your father the devil, you brought of vipers. He called them a bunch of devils. And he says, listen to you, who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath is coming. You see, repentance, we learn here in this particular story, is that it takes an honest assessment of ourselves. So if your vision of repentance is, I'm not that bad, then you've never repented, friend. You've deceived yourself into thinking that you're okay. Repentance is taking an honest assessment and saying, I am a viper. I am a son of Satan. I am as evil as evil can be. But thanks be to God, God has restrained my evil. I'm not as bad as I could be. Repentance involves taking an honest assessment that we are not on God's way. That we are a part of the city of destruction. In Bunyan's great Pilgrim's Progress, it was Christian who realized that he lived in the city of destruction and that he needed to flee. He needed to flee that city. It was going to be destroyed. Uh, Friend, repentance is recognizing that if we don't stop the way we're going, we will kill ourselves, spiritually speaking. That living life our own way does not end in a more glorious, more blessed life. It ends in death and destruction. The great Cappadocian father, John Christossom, said, Be ashamed when you sin, not when you repent. Be ashamed, he said, when you sin, but not when you repent. Repentance isn't about shame. It's about an honest assessment. We ought to be honest with ourselves and with others. We are broken. But left to ourselves... We see also here in verses 8 and 9 that repentance is fruitful. Repentance is fruitful. Look what he goes on to say there in verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, John says that, that if you are truly repentant, if you've truly turned from your way and gone God's way, then what will result but is fruit. You see? John makes clear that those who have genuinely repented of their sins will bear fruit. The one evidence that you and I have to hold up that repentance is genuine in our hearts is the fruit that we bear. Repentance bears fruit, you see. Look what he goes on to say there in verse 8. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Some were claiming that because they were descendants of Israel, that they were the true Israel. That because they were descendants, because their mommy and daddy were believers, that they themselves were believers. Uh, Friend, do not trust in your heritage for salvation. Just because your parents were faithful doesn't mean that you're saved. Just because your grandparents were godly doesn't mean that you are. 
And this is what John is warning here, is that those who are genuine believers, those who have followed God's way and abandoned their own way, will bear fruit. What does Jesus say? That the world will know you by what? Because you're a jerk? Because you have a bad attitude? Because you're mean to everybody? Because you're self-righteous? No, by your love, people will know that you are my disciple. Friend, do you bear fruit in your life? Is there evidence that we can see that, that, that can verify that you've turned and trusted? This is what John says. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We ought never to be so prideful as to think that God needs us. That His kingdom is somehow greater because we're a part of it. God can create His own people. And He will. And He does. For His own glory. Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is why one of the tests of church membership and joining a local church is that there's evidence in your life that you're a believer. You might say, well, well who are we to judge? Um, Jesus commanded us to. You see, the world tells you not to judge one another. It's a lie, friend. We ought to assess one another to be able to say, yes, there's fruit in your life. How, how unloving it is for us to, to look at someone and say, I love you, but not call them out in their sin. Repentance isn't easy, but repentance bears fruit. Notice even here, he says in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, judgment is coming, friend. Repent. Tom Schreiner is helpful here. He writes, the fruit of repentance must be evident in our lives as ongoing evidence that we are believers. Luke is not saying, of course, that we must obey perfectly to be saved on the last day, but he is insisting on evidence in our lives that we may be saved by the grace of God. We cannot appeal to some outward signs such as baptism, church attendance, or, or going to an altar call, he says, to assure ourselves that we are saved. No, the mark of salvation is a changed life. Are, are, do you appeal just to some spiritual thing you did? Or is there fruit in your life today? Ongoing fruit, bearing fruit. Friend, let us encourage one another in this way. Number five, repentance is radical. As John's preaching to the crowds, notice the crowds respond to him. What are we going to do? What shall we do? How can we be saved? They're scared. What kind of fruit should we see in our lives? John makes clear in these verses that repentance is a radical turning from our old ways to a new way. It's deeply personal and it is far-reaching. As Jesus made clear in the Sermon on the Mount that repentance involves plucking out eyes and cutting off limbs. Repentance is radical, friend. Now, he gives us a number of examples here, right? Number, number one, he says, listen, if you have resources and you don't share with others, then you need to share. He tells the crowds that if you have two tunics, that is, if you have two shirts, 
share with those in, who doesn't have any shirt, doesn't have any clothes, or any food. Then tax collectors came in verse 12. Now, tax collectors were kind of a notorious crowd. Um, nobody really liked them because they worked for the government. All right? Maybe you have that view. If somebody works for the government, they're a little bit lower than, than the low. And tax collectors worked for the Roman government to collect, to collect tax. And one of the things they would do is they would extort people. And so John says, listen, he doesn't say stop being a tax collector. Stop working for the civil government. He doesn't tell him that at all. He says stop exhorting people, extorting people. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers, likewise, he says, what shall we do? Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. And notice here, he never tells them to stop being soldiers, stop being tax collectors, but, but to be fair and honest, to be godly in their response. You see, it's radical, isn't it? Notice that each and every one of these deals with money and resources. That's because often one of the biggest ways you can tell whether or not one is truly repentant is by the way they spend their money. It was true then, and it is true today. How we spend our money reveals where our treasures are, don't they? It reveals what we truly value. The Westminster Confession of Faith makes this so clear, that men ought not to content themselves with general repentance, but in every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins. His particular sins. In other words, we ought to inspect where are we not following Christ? Where are we still going our own way? A lack of generosity, perhaps. As Martin Luther put it best, when our Lord and Savior, Master Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to one of repentance. Now, here's the question that I often get about repentance. That it's a once and done deal. No, friend, the, the life of the believer is a continual turning from sin and to Christ. You ought to be repentant every single day of your life. Daily asking, Holy Spirit, bring light into the darkness of my heart. Reveal sin to me that it might be known to me and that I might abandon it, flee from it. Friend, if you're not willing to pluck out a few eyes and cut off a few limbs, friend, you will not make it to heaven. Repentance is radical. But repentance is also good news, isn't it? We're told here in verses 15 through 18 that John went around preaching good news. Well, I hope that you've come to realize this morning, this doesn't sound like good news, does it? I mean, nothing, when, when you're told that you're wrong, you don't immediately say, thank you, I feel encouraged. Our natural response when we are exposed, when we do something dumb, isn't to celebrate when someone calls us out, is it? Self-defense is our natural response. Well, you know, I didn't mean to do that. Or, oh, well, you know, you don't understand. I, you know, we begin to self-justify our sin. But we're told here in this particular passage that John went around, verse 16, preaching good news. Preaching good news. Well, what's so good about the gospel? Well, the good news and why it's called good news is because we are being saved from the wrath of God. 
that our sin rightly deserves God's judgment and that we're being saved from it. We're being saved from ourselves. And notice here how he describes it. There in verse 17, he says, His, that is Jesus's, winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wow, Jesus doesn't seem so nice here. He's got a big pitchfork in his hand, and he's sifting wheat, and he's taking the wheat, he's gathering together the wheat are his people, and the chaff are going to be burned alive, are going to be burned, unquenchable fire. It's a description of hell where, where the worm does not die, and the flame is not quenched. It's a perpetual death. It's good news because the message of salvation has come. Repentance is good, friend. Friend, we ought never, never to see the light as bad. In other words, we should never come to a place where we're we're saddened that our sin was exposed. We ought to see it as good news. That God was gracious enough to us to shine the light into the midst of our darkness. To bring us into the light that we might repent and believe. Friend, good news has come. We're told here that, that John, though baptized with water, that Jesus was coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that we don't stay sinners. But the promise is the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us and rejuvenates us, renews us, restores us, and makes us holy. It's good news, friend. We see lastly here that repentance isn't popular. Genuine repentance isn't popular. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked John in prison. John stood boldly to the ruler, the governor, and said, you divorcing your wife in order to take your brother's wife is evil and wrong. And what did he get for him? Not a good pat on the back, not a, wow, thank you, John, for sharing that message with me. I'll take it to heart, but rather, it got John's head chopped off. Repentance isn't popular, friend. The gospel will never be popular. It'll never be cool. It'll never be acceptable. Friend, this society isn't growing warmer to the things of God. It's not like, ooh, this is, this is good. I, I like this, this repentance stuff. Oh, you calling out me and my sin. I like that. It's encouraging. Oh, yes. Friend, this world will never love Jesus. But we're called to preach repentance to call people out in their sin and to call them to faith in Christ. John was bold to preach repentance. Repent and believe. 
The great Anglican preacher J.C. Ryle commenting on this particular passage, he says this, For the church of Christ, if it were possible to have more plain-speaking ministers like John the Baptist in these latter days, there is no charity in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or in, in applying smooth epithets to their damnable sins. In other words, there are people that you know who are living in unrepentant sin. And you know that their life is, is leading them to death. You know that their sin is leading them to condemnation. You're not doing them any favors by remaining silent. I know you're afraid you're going to lose a friend or two. I know you're going to lose your, your word. You might lose that family member. that They might cut you off. I understand that. But friend, our responsibility is to speak the truth in love. To, to, to cry out at the, the evil that abounds around us. I mean, just this past week, one of the most well-known preachers in America sends a letter to the governor of California calling him out in his evil, saying that the murder of unborn children is evil, and you celebrate that which is evil. How sad it is that, that we run around here saying, God bless America, when we murder more children per capita than any other nation. God is never going to bless this country. Do you understand that, right? A country that murders millions of unborn children. God will never bless this mess. But He will bless His people who are faithful to preach the good news of the gospel and to call people out in the rebellion against God. Repentance will never be popular, friend. The gospel will never be accepted. But friend, in this way, this is what following Jesus looks like. A forsaking of sin. Of recognizing that sin leads to death. But that the free offer of salvation has been given to us through the death of another. Through the death of Christ and His death on the cross for our iniquity, for our sin, friend. If we would just forsake our way and trust in His good way, oh, then will come blessing and riches. Not in this life, but in the life to come. May we turn from our sin and trust that His way is a better way. That His way leads to the great city. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning as we think about this particular theme of repentance, help us to repent. Help us to lament our sin, to lament our rebellion in all the ways that we've deceived ourselves. Oh, Father, may we not run from You in this moment, but entreat You all the more, knowing that You are a God who is steadfast in love, who is abundant in mercy, who will never turn a sinner away, who repents and trusts in You. And even now as we come to the table, reminded that once we were Your enemies, once we wanted to see Your kingdom crushed, we hated You. But now, You've invited us to feast with Your Son at an everlasting banquet. Oh, Father, help us, I pray, to forsake our ways and to trust Christ anew today. For Your glory and our good in Christ's name we pray.
Amen. As our deacons come to prepare for the Lord's Supper, it is a fitting occasion to think about repentance in this moment. It was the Lord's purpose for us as His church to regularly attend this table, to regularly sit and feast and at His table here that we might learn the regular rhythm of turning and forsaking our sin. No doubt many of you go to the doctor regularly for a, a health checkup to make sure that your heart is correct and that your, your levels are, are okay. Friend, I hope you see that the Lord's Supper is that kind of spiritual checkup moment in your life where you ought to ask yourself this question, have I been following Jesus? Have I been following Jesus? If you haven't been following Jesus, it's not a, a time to let your head hang low, but, but rather to see there in the, the bread and, and in the cup that this is His body broken for my sin. It's an occasion to renew your trust and commitment. Perhaps you've been faithful to the Lord. Perhaps you, you haven't been living in willful rebellion against Him. It's an occasion to be reminded that, that he saved you and He sustained you as he, as he promised. Wherever you are this morning, I do want to remind you of a number of things. First, this is an ordinance of the church. Therefore, being an ordinance of the church, we require a number of things. First, that you are a believer. So if you don't understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, just let me encourage you to let that plate pass as it comes by you. We're, we will not shame you. We're not going to giggle at you. If you've been living in rebellion against God, let me just encourage you as these plates are being passed as an occasion to turn from your sin. Cry out to God for forgiveness. If you've been baptized as a believer and you're a member of a local church, not this church or maybe somewhere else faithfully, then you're welcome to feast with us this morning. But I do want to remind you the warning that God gives in His Word to eat and drink in an unworthy manner actually results in judgment. And we don't desire that for you this morning. So let me encourage you one last time. Repent and believe in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace that we have in Christ. We're reminded that this is truly Your body broken for us. A symbol, a reminder of what You did on the cross at Calvary. You died the death we deserve that our sinful rebellion rightly deserves from a good God. We're reminded that this juice is a a reminder of the shedding of your blood. As your word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we, we drink this cup with the joy of knowing that our sins have been forgiven. That they are as far as the east is from the west. They will never come out again. Our past, our present, our future sins have been forgiven for all of eternity. We rejoice as we feast that one day we will feast again. That this is but a dress rehearsal for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so we drink and we eat with anticipation and with hope. That you would come quickly, Lord, for your bride, for your church. We pray this for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.